0: That'll be enough of that. Um, my name is Charlie and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> people are intense. Um, wow, I'm, I'm really honored to be here. I'm honored to be a uh, part of this. I've heard so much about it from people who have been here before, and uh, it's really an honor to be asked to participate in any AA meeting, but it's especially an honor to be asked to participate in a meeting with so much enthusiasm and so many people who have come a long way just to share in what we have here—it's—it's it's awesome, and I am really grateful to Dick for asking me to be here. And and seeing—I I see a lot of people here that I've known over the years, and uh, uh, this has been—I have people coming up all night saying, gee, I hear you had a terrible time getting in here today, and I didn't have a terrible trip getting here. I had a fitful trip, but not a bad one. Uh, my my flight left at midnight last night from L.A. and uh, I got here fine, My Pete was at the airport, Pete and Greg were there to pick me up this morning and uh, got out of there fine, but i for the last, ever since I got asked to speak here, I've been hearing about the pink poodle. Um, I mean, I've been, I never asked, I just got the big build up from Eileen, and uh, I kept hearing about it, oh, every time I see Eileen, we're going to go to the pink poodle, we're going to have a great time, it's going to be terrific, it's way out in the middle of a cornfield, and I thought, well, nothing could please me more than that, and, uh, <laughs> beats the crawl space of a country house anyway i um i've been waiting for the pink pool and i saw johnny wednesday night and johnny's like right here we're going to the pink pool you know well now i hadn't thought about it very much at all seriously but then i started to get sort of that pink poodle fever you know what i mean um, i started to get kind of excited about the pink pool i was going to be it was going to become a lore and uh, i was running to go i got here i i was exhausted when i got here i, I sat in front of some boobs who would not shut up all night uh, but I love all of them. And um, <laughs> and uh, I got here and tried to eat in the coffee shop, and some gentleman came in and sat next to me. I was reading a book, and he would not let me read. He was kept looking at the book, saying, "What are you doing?" And I seriously, and I could not. I didn't want to talk to him, and I did everything. I, he kept asking me questions about a lot of people writing those books, aren't they? <laughs> Apparently so. Uh, I I was just trying to be nice and, and it just after, every time i start to look down he'd say, you bring your wife here? You, you're from this area? No, I'm not from this area. I'm visiting friends. I'm trying to keep it as cool as possible. I don't want to make a big deal out of it. And how long are you staying for? Where are you staying? What are you doing? I, you know, this, this independent clause I've been reading for the last 20 minutes is fascinating, but I'd like to get on to the next sentence if you don't mind. Uh, I, did, I didn't say it in so many words. I said something like, it's a detective book. And um, and then I got out of there and, and uh, got to my room and took a little nap and went down to the gym and got on the Stairmaster which I, I've never worked out before but I understood that was supposed to be good for you and uh, I had to have one of the hotel staff come up and help me with my pants tonight uh, I found sweat where I hadn't sweat there for 30 years uh, you do some sweating on that thing I said it for 20 minutes and uh Get you know, a lot of sweating done in 20 minutes, and, and everything is just you know moving along fine, and I'm ready. To, I'm I'm in pink poodle. I'm ready for the pink poodle now, and I I went up to my room and I lay down for a second. I got up and anointed myself, you know, and did all the stuff that we do, and I got dressed and I was down in the lobby at five o'clock and found out everybody left at four thirty. Oh yeah, you can imagine my disappointment. I've been uh, I've been pumped up for weeks about the pink poodle. So Greg was there, and he felt bad, and he wanted to, I was trying to downplay it, but I'm an alcoholic, and my feelings are hurt, you know, because I'm I'm thinking everybody's at the Pink Poodle just having a time of their lives, and uh, Greg didn't know what to do, so he took me to this place, and we sat down and had dinner, and we're sitting there talking, and he had some things to talk about, and I I was, I was enjoying his company, and it, it occurred to me, you know, that this is a really amazing thing, because it just worked out exactly the way it was supposed to work out. He had some things he wanted to talk about. I talked, had some things I talked to him about, and we just had a great time sitting there. i never met this man before in my life, and uh, that's the joy of Alcoholics Anonymous is you can sit down with someone that you've never met before, and you can talk to him as if you've known him for your whole life. And uh, people understand. You know, you don't feel lonely. You don't feel left out. You don't feel uh, apart from. You feel just part of everything. And and the longer we spent in this in this restaurant, the more I realized that this is exactly the way it. it it just worked out fine, you know. Not that God was going to say, Oh, Charles, you're not going to be going to the pink poodle tonight. But uh, I don't think God, I think God's got a few things on his hands besides me and the pink poodle. But um, it, it was just, it was really a pleasant, pleasant time. And um, I'm really glad to be here. I, um, I'm a drunk. That's my only problem. Uh, I, my only issue, really. I feel so lonely in AA sometimes. But uh, I. Uh, I just suffer from alcoholism. I apologize to any of you here who are uh, revved up for something else. But uh, if you're looking for inner children, you're going to have to go someplace else because I don't have one. And, uh, and and we just exercised Johnny's before the meeting. He didn't have one either. So uh, I. My You know what? I, I don't have. I don't have a very glamorous story, I have the, the dullest story in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, uh, you're going to hate Dick Martin at the end of this, I'll tell you. And, and I've done nothing noteworthy, but I do have one thing going for me and that is that I am I'm burning with potential. Um, and I have been since about October 1950, I've, um, I've been just percolating with potential. And, uh, and testosterone, but mostly, <laughs> at, least, uh, at least I had a chance of using potential, but um, I have been uh, that way as long as I can remember. I didn't mean to be an alcoholic. I never, you know, on, on June the 11th of 1981, when I took my last drink or anything that uh, alters my mood chemically, I had no idea what was in store for me. And I didn't have any, I knew, I realized later on that if I had known that I would have to be here, I would have done things a lot differently. But uh, my story is what it is, and I, I had no plans to be an alcoholic. I had no examples of alcoholism in my immediate family. Um, I, I suppose there were alcoholics in my family. My dad had 14 brothers and sisters, so just statistically speaking, there were probably, you know, a couple of them in there that were, were uh, wired for sound, but not. Um, Not any. There was no one in my immediate family that way. I was an only child, and uh, my father was a carpenter, and uh, that poses a whole set of problems right there. My mother was a humble virgin woman, and uh, uh, I—I've been uh, suffering from that for a long time. Feeling like the inadequate savior, you know. I, I I knew that I could save the world. I just didn't believe I could. And uh, I, my parents did everything they could. They they didn't have a lot of money. They were they my they were hardworking people, and uh, they gave me what they could. And and that just if you're like I am, and I'm assuming there are a couple of you in here probably understand. Giving what you can just doesn't cut it. You're gonna have to do better than that. I. Um, I never said that though, but I felt it, you know, and it creates I've I've spent a whole life living my I've lived in emotional torque my whole life. You know, that feeling where you just hate everybody around you and you can't stand being a human being and you the only problem you have with people is that they continue to draw breath <laughs> and the world is a big cesspool and yet I feel guilty about feeling that way. And that creates torque. You can get a lot of stuff you can get you can live your life on that. I mean it just it's like It's like electricity for somebody like me. Um, And I I have expectations followed by disappointment, followed by resentment, followed by fear and rage, and all that stuff building up inside. But I'm not the type that tells anybody about it. I'm a rebel, but it's hard to be a rebel when you won't tell anybody. And (laughs) my life was uh, fine when I was a kid. And I I, I had a lot of potential, as I said, and I I, um, had that brought to my attention by a lot of people, priests, and... High school counselors and neighborhood members uh, who would tell my parents, "Well, he's got a kid's got potential," and it, it always seemed to be followed up with, "We don't understand why he's not doing anything <laughs> with it." And my feeling was, uh, I know I've got potential. Now my parents know I have potential. You know I've got potential. Why don't we just leave it? <laughs> I'll use it when I'm damn good ready to, but I'm just not ready to jump through the hoop for you folks. I'd love to, but you see, I've got a life to live. I'm not anybody's pet pony. So why don't you just back it off and I'll take my potential and use it. Why don't you go play somewhere? And I didn't say it in quite so many words. I said something like, I'll try harder, but um, But then I got to live with the torque, you know uh, that cosmic one of these that I walked around i now. Now, this is, this bothered me a lot when I was new because I heard a lot of people in AA talk about fighting and slugging it out and killing people and doing, creating mayhem. And all I did was walk around my whole life hating people and giving them the cosmic one of these. And I found out we're the same alcoholics. You just did it. I stood back and thought about doing it. There are two different kinds of prisons for alcoholics like us, you know. And it doesn't make the disease any different, but it's the it's the way it's acted out. It's the it's the actions that that are different, but it's the same kind of set of symptoms. And I felt distressed, and I felt all my life the sense of longing, you know, just the sense. It's like an appetite, you know, you. If, if you're hungry for food, you eat. If you're if you're sleepy, you sleep. If you hunger for knowledge, you learn. If you hunger for acquisitions, you buy things. If you hunger for sex, you, know, you have sex. Uh, if you're lucky, you have a partner. But uh, it's um it's, uh, it's a hunger. The only the only trouble I had with that hunger is that none of those other things would satisfy it. Because it wasn't a hunger that was able to be satisfied here. And I didn't know about that till long after I got sober. That I was trying to satisfy a longing inside of me with things that were not designed to satisfy the longing. You know, they're just things. And I didn't understand that. And I tried so hard because all around me I saw things that I thought proved that those little things would be it. And I live my whole life, and I'm assuming you do too, knowing what those pronouns mean it them because they are usually on in the way of my getting it you know they all seem to have it they don't want to share it and I know if I had it then I'll be fine but it didn't I could never find it because everything I tried to make it wasn't you know it never worked out and um, when I was 18 years old I went to a party with a bunch of people i had... Gotten out of high school with very little notoriety and had catapulted into the music industry as a, a clerk in this record store in my neighborhood, and <laughs> I, uh, some of the hoodlums from my high school were coming in there and hanging out. And I've always had a grudging admiration for villains and hoodlums, and uh, I've always wanted to be something that I'm not, you know. And at that time, I was about six foot two and a strapping 129 pounds, uh, you know, of, of uh, raving lunatic. but unable to tell anyone, and these guys came into this record store, and they asked me if I wanted to go to a party, and I'd known them from high school, and I said, sure, so we went to this party, this is, this is over a period of time, it didn't happen one night, but it just, uh, I went to this party with these guys, and I didn't know what to do, because I, I was not a drinker, I didn't like to drink, I never had drunk before, you know, I always thought it was a moral weakness, when I saw friends of my parents drink, I thought, oh brother, you know, if you need that, you've really got nothing going for you, because I'm a believer in pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. If you focus your will power on something, you can make it happen. You can change it. If you focus sheer dint of will on anything, you can change it. Now, I, up to that point, had not chosen to focus my will. I was, uh, I was getting ready to, but not today. And I, But I got to that party and someone handed me a 16-ounce can of malt liquor. And I drank it. And something happened to me that night that happened very quickly. And I know that, that there, again, there's a variety of different ways to become alcoholic. Some people drink socially over a period of time and, and slide into alcoholic drinking. But I, I just vaulted into it. Um, I heard someone say at my home group meeting one night that his invisible line was his mouth. And I, I agree with that. Um, I, I got that alcohol in me and I had a religious experience. I mean, I had a true... I'm not saying that to be funny or or sarcastic I had a true spiritual experience because it changed everything about me from the inside out it changed the way I looked at everything it didn't change anything around me but it changed the absolute viewer that I was looking at the world through and it changed my soul It, it made everything seem so full of hope then It took away all the fear that I had. It took away all the ugliness that I felt. It took away all the gangliness and the awkwardness and the resentment that I felt toward other people for being what they were. It took away uh, the feeling that I was somehow less than everybody else and I felt comfortable with you. And that was an important thing. that's a really important thing for alcoholics because once we finally find a place where we are comfortable amongst people, I don't want to leave there. You know, you'd be a fool to want to leave. I think that's a basic human need is to feel equal amongst everyone and to feel even and to feel part of. That's a basic human need, it's not an alcoholic need, but alcohol provides me with that feeling that it doesn't provide most of the human population with, just us. And when I drank that night, I'll tell you, there was hope in the air, I could smell it. And I didn't get, I don't recall with that first beer getting drunk, but I got there. And only alcoholics know where there is. Because we've all been there. It's that place. You know where that is. When you're there. I can't describe it, but you just fill in the blanks. Uh, From up here, I can see people's eyes. And you say there. You can see the new guy is going. He knows. I've been there. Uh, (laughs) You mean somebody else has been there too? I mean, we're all going there. When i go to the Humdinger in Anaheim to drink, I'd sit there at a bar with all these people. Everybody's going there. Oh, we didn't say it to each other. I didn't say, where are you headed? Uh, but if I had, they would have said, I'm going there. Um, I'd say, I'll be damned. I'm going there, too. I'll meet you there. And we just go there. But uh, I never saw them there, but it didn't matter because I was there, and that's all that counted. Um, I was just there. You know, that place where nothing can hurt you. And I don't ever want to, the minute I got there, I never wanted to go back to the way I was the moment before I put that can of malt liquor in me. I mean, what kind of a fool would want to do that? And then you hear the well-meaning people, well, just say no. Oh, that's easy for you. Um, But no is not in my vocabulary when it comes to getting there. Let's see now. I feel like an absolute pariah. I feel less than everybody else on the planet. I have no spiritual center. I have no usefulness. People look at me funny. I feel odd. I feel like nothing's ever going to happen for me, but when I take one ounce of grain alcohol and throw it down my throat, I feel human for the very first time. I feel like things are going to be okay. (laughs) guess I better not. You know, uh, what kind of an idiot thinks of that stuff? I, I was a high school teacher in sobriety and we had alcohol awareness week. Which is, for an alcoholic, it's a laugh. Because the only people who are listening to it are the ones who have n- If you're listening to Alcohol Awareness Week, why bother uh, with you anyway? That's not the person that it's designed for. But the only people who listen to it are the non-alcoholics. It's really interesting to them, because they don't have to worry about it. It's like a, It's like an auto-accident driving by it, you know? It's fascinating to the people driving by. If you're in the accident, it doesn't look too hot, but... Uh, <laughs> But everybody else wants to slow down and take a look at it. You know, geez, look at that. You know, I'm glad I'm not him. <laughs> and and alcohol awareness you cannot tell somebody like me. You cannot tell an eighteen year old who's felt nothing for his whole life, has not had a I couldn't feel human emotions. I just felt you know, and it wasn't, it's not my parents' fault and it's not anybody's fault it's not my school's fault because I had good teachers and good schools I had, as I said, good parents I, had, I grew up in a very secure environment in a neighborhood where everybody's parents were married and people lived in, in a you know, they, they lived productive lives and I had good examples and all that stuff going on and I still felt terrible inside and yet when I drank I felt fine I felt good I felt whole I am not going back to feeling the way I felt before. When I drank, I felt comfortable letting my emotions out. I didn't drink to get away from the world. I drank to feel part of the world. I didn't drink to get loaded. I drank to feel comfortable amongst you, to feel safe enough to actually really laugh at something or really cry at something, you know, and really allow those emotions to come out. Because when I was sober, not me, I'd button it up and pull the mask on and i wouldn't let anybody get near me but when i drank i felt like i was i finally found my entree in the human feelings and a human world and i didn't think of all this consciously you understand i didn't all i knew is when i drank i felt better immeasurably better and so i just i, I from that moment on drank as often as i could to feel that way and my drunk log again it led to uh, as the book describes that pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization i'm, I'm a i'm a park sleeper i'm a blood peer i'm a hospital visitor but i don't stay because i'm not an alcoholic i'm a troublemaker but not really i'm the kind of troublemaker that you pat if you pat him on the head a couple of times he'll leave you know and i'm, I'm the kind of a drunk who believes that the fastest way down a flight of stairs is to relax. You know, one of those kind of guys. I just believe that when I drink, I believe things are going to happen. You know, that the world is finally going to work. Things are going to happen, but I'm not going to screw up my buzz and do anything. Because alcohol gave me the utter satisfaction of a job well done without ever having to do a damn thing. I felt so good when I was drinking that why bother sitting down doing something, it just ruins it, you know? I wanted to be a writer. More importantly, I wanted you to think of me as a writer. That's much more important than actually having written something. And uh, I, I would get my tweed jacket out and my Oxford shirt, you know, and all you got to do is memorize a couple of good poems and go down to the Or House in Santa Monica and sit there with your pen and your notebook. You memorize a couple of poems, those people don't read poetry. Uh, I could sit there and knock out James Joyce, Eliot, you know, I could write anything. And they'd say, no, oh, that's pretty good. Well, of course it's good. I just, I just read it this afternoon, uh, but, and I would adopt it as my own, you know, and sit there and play that game so people would think I was somebody, because was, it was really important for me to be somebody. I wanted to be something, you know, and I had absolutely no ability to try to put, put what I wanted to be into action. So I just tried to live off of the energy of other people and imitate other people and imitate and play the game and, and dance around and make people, you know, if you look at this and laugh at this and you laugh at all that stuff, you never will get a chance to really look at what's going on in here. And neither will I. And so it was enough for me just to make you buy what I was putting out there in the front. And by the time I got here 13 years later, I was like this, this empty attitude in here looking for a human being to put inside of it you know, the shell of a human, and I didn't even know it, I didn't even have any understanding of it, you know, I was so confused and so sick and so balled up inside that I could not tell anybody, I wouldn't tell you what was wrong with me, and I'd gone through uh, relationships and marriages, and uh, a marriage, sorry, and um, relationships sometimes are just like marriages, uh, there's only one drawback with a relationship and that is that it usually involves someone else, um, I had the, that was the, the real sticking point for me. If it didn't have to involve somebody else, I could get, I'd be happily married. But um, <laughs> I, I got married to this woman because I thought it would lend me some credibility, make me real, give me another dimension, you know? And it didn't work. I put all those expectations on it. And I married a non-alcoholic woman, a lovely woman, a woman who had one terrible defect of character, and that was that she loved me. And it just, it really ripped her apart. And I learned, uh, you know, in, in sobriety, I've learned that it hurts people when we do that. You know, we, we cut our way through lives. We don't even know it. We don't even know what we do. Um, and my life just started to, to fall apart in little tiny ways. I finally got into the publishing business as a, a clerk in this receiving dock at this bookstore. And um, I started... I was working there and I thought if I'd get into publishing by having a hands-on approach to books literally unloading them off of a truck and I thought that would help me write and I had all these ideas but I I'd just go home and drink you know I'd go home and drink and dream and drink and think and drink and try to feel and as the time wore on and my drinking got worse and the and the close brushes got worse because I'm a I'm a drunk driver I I drive drunk a lot I'm not proud of that I was talking to Greg about that at uh, dinner tonight you know we um we do stuff that we laugh about in the context of alcoholics anonymous but they're things that we don't take any pride in having done we laugh out of identification in aa but i drove drunk a lot of the time and i and we laugh i mean i I, you do stupid stuff when you drive drunk if you don't kill somebody you know, but some of the stuff is, is kind of amusing. I mean, I remember, I didn't, I'm not like you, I didn't fireball my car. I've heard people from AA talk about that all the time. And I took out 13 parked cars, New Year's Eve, 1983, and I thought, lucky you. God, i just uh, I just whack my car against a post or something, or, or back it up and scrape it along the stucco on a wall or some uh, ob- obnoxious thing, and I never really fireball the car. Um, I rolled one once and I drove on a sidewalk in Mexico one time, but that's no big deal. That's not an AA legend, you know. Uh, (laughs) And I thought I wasn't enough when I got into AA. I heard people talk about that stuff and I thought, well, you know, I can't compete here. I'm not one of these people either. They did some really great stuff. (laughs) These people have been to prison. These people have beaten other people up. I couldn't kick my own ass. And if I did, I just feel so bad. I'd apologize to myself, so I made myself sick, and then have a drink, so I'd feel better about it. You know, um, that that always worked. You know, it always worked for a little bit. It always worked for the times that it worked became smaller and smaller. You know, the 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 stop at there, which had been weekends earlier, you can go there and spend a whole weekend there. Pretty soon, I was just driving by the off ramp. You know, I. I'm almost there. I'm half there. What's happening now? You know? Oh my God! What's going on with me? You know? And I and, and my, my wife started to get annoyed with my behavior, and and yet she after I got sober, she she refused to see what was going on. She just could not understand why I was going to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'll pick that up in a in a second because I just talked to her last week, and she called me with a really amusing phone call. But uh, you know, we had our problems, and I would I would go home from work and. And I was going to therapy the last year or the last two years of my drinking. Um, therapy's great, real Incidentally, I'm not a therapy basher. therapy is wonderful as long as you never have to leave the therapist's office. Uh, if you can arrange it so you can live there, therapy works for an alcoholic. But I had to leave, and um, and my th- I had this, this nice woman. You know, she had the she did the best she could with what she had to work with. But one of the prerequisites for therapy is telling the truth, and I believed I told as much truth as I could stand. You know, I gave as much truth as until it became painful. But I couldn't tell the whole truth, and and she kept telling me, "Well, you have to be truthful with Lisa, my my wife, my ex-wife." And uh, what? How can I be truthful with her? What am I going to say? You know, when she comes home from work, how how was your day, honey? Oh, it was great. I got up about an hour after you left, and uh, I didn't go to work today. I walked down to max liquor store, got a couple of bottles of Andre Cold Duck, came home, drank them down. Got kind of revved up for some artistic nourishment, so I went down to the Pussycat Theater down in Torrance and uh, caught the afternoon showing of uh, Donkey Lunch. And... Um, then I got in the car, did something really disgusting on the way home, and uh, stopped off at Mac's liquor store again. Got a couple of bottles of uh, cheap bourbon and came home and took a shower. Started drinking, got sick, but I kept drinking. And uh, then you came home. How was your day? You know? We can't tell the. What, we cannot tell the truth. It's not like we don't want to, but it's just so. There's so many questions that come along with the truth. Why bother, you know? You come walking in on a Monday morning held together with scotch tape, and one of your co-workers says, how was your weekend? What do you say? Oh, it was wonderful, uh, Friday night I got off, I went down in, to the ATM and took out all my money, <laughs> um, because you don't want to be alone on a weekend without cash. Uh, I had checks coming in, but here's insanity. I believed that on Monday morning, I would go back, I'd take out 300 bucks, because that's all you could take out on one day, but I believe that Monday morning I'd go back with 280 bucks and put it back in again. And as you know, by Sunday morning, I'm going between the seats with a coat hanger trying to get change out, you know, weeping to find a five dollar bill on a pair of pants that I hadn't worn for about six months. Just so grateful that you just well up with tears.
1: You
0: know, I I took out all my money, went down to Jolly Jacks down in uh, Maine, uh, down in Lincoln in Santa Monica, drank there till I made myself damn near sick. Oh, well, I went out and peed a little blood, got sick, went into a blackout. I can't remember what I did the rest of the night, but uh, Sunday I got up and uh, I was in my mom's nightgown. Um, <laughs> Passed out on the kitchen table with my face stuck to some cherry brandy. So I cleaned up and I got my sweater, which I'd accidentally thrown up in, and uh, washed it all out, took it to the dry cleaners. Um, Last night I was going through the seats of my car looking for change so I could get a bottle of port, kind of keep the demons away on Sunday night, and sat at home feeling like the loneliest human being on the earth on Sunday night, which I think for alcoholics has got to be the most horrifying moment of the week. It's Sunday night at about six o'clock when the sun is going down and all of the anticipation that Friday had is gone. And all of the loss is there and you know that everybody else is with their families and they fulfill whatever they set out to do over the weekend and they're together with people they love and I'm sitting home alone and I'm feeling like the loneliest person on the earth. So I sat there and I sat, had a bottle of port and I sat and listened to records all, all night until I passed out and I got up and came to work this morning. How was your weekend? You know, we cannot tell the truth. Not because we don't want to, but it's just impossible to tell it. Why even bother? My life is so screwed up. I don't know what to do with it. You know, and and it was. And I, um, the last year of my drinking were, were, was appalling. I can't remember a time where every day brought a new set of nightmares, just a new set of confusions and fears and physical illness and. I had I was getting these attacks of psoriasis, you know, which is a, a long going problem, ongoing problem. But uh, this was so bad that I have to vacuum my sheets in the morning with one of those little Stanley uh, vacuum things. I felt like I was decomposing while I'm still alive, you know. And I'm I've got I've got uh, infections, you know, pancreas infections and prostate infections and kidney infections, and I'm getting medications for those. And I'm going to therapy, and I'm I'm trying to man I'm trying to maintain my taking drugs. You know, which is part of, I guess, everybody's story. We all try to take drugs. The only problem I have with drugs is drugs got me high. And I don't want to be high. I want to be there. You know, I don't want to be loaded. I want to be there. And I took them to thinking maybe they'd get me there. But they never did. And I'd smoke marijuana and wind up at 4 o'clock in the morning eating a jar of mayonnaise in the kitchen. <laughs> and... You know, I'm I'm eating it as fast as I can, thinking, I wonder if Humphrey Bogart ever went through this, you know? Because I wanted to be like those guys, those guys that had identity, Errol Flynn. You know, I almost made it. Uh, unfortunately, it's kind of hard to pull off Errol Flynn when you look like Sherman in the Mister Peabody cartoons. But I gave it a college try, I'll tell you, and I um. I took my, I took speed for a while, which is a delightful experience, Uh, having your eyes trying to beat you into the next room, it was a fun night, you know, Um, you're in the bathroom at sunset sorting combs, you know, think I'll arrange all my record albums by color, a waste of time it does, I'm not there I'm just busy and I don't want I don't want to be busy I want to be <sighs> took PCP it's another experience I don't care to relive you know I didn't uh, after I came off of some PCP trips I didn't go boy that was great I think I want to go back there um, I don't want to do that anymore you know and, and uh, I never took acid I'm, I'm one of the, <laughs> the alleged Woodstock generation and and uh, Everybody around me was taking acid. I do not want to take acid. I'd heard that if you take acid and you're just a little bit off, just a couple of clicks to the north of center, if you take acid, you will never come back. And I realized, you know, I, I didn't have to sit down and think about that. I'm the guy who was saving up food in my house for Armageddon. <laughs> I'm, the guy who was, I'm the guy who was shopping for guns down the street from that bookstore where I'd work and be Mr. Knight. I was like, you know, the Pepperidge Farm guy at work and then I'd walk down and be shopping for pistols and rifles because I had to protect that food I had in my house. <laughs> Luckily, I had no credit or else I would have been armed, you know, and I, I have a gun so that just, my, my rationale was when civilization falls, and old Marge from across the street makes a run on my food. <laughs> I can pick her off right in the middle of Victoria Avenue, you know. Kind of
1: <laughs>
0: I love Marge, but I had to drop her, you know. On... And I'm thinking like this: I wearing sunglasses at night. Uh, maybe some of you here are doing that. I uh, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. I. I was paranoid I was fearful I was I was losing control of everything and I kept trying to exert my will on it and the more will I exerted the more elusive it got and the more I would drink because drinking gave me a semblance of power and then when I drank I, ha- I didn't have any power I couldn't even get there I was doing all that al- you know the alcoholic foreplay that we go through at the end where you get a bottle of whiskey and you I'd go home from work and I'd, I'd get this bottle of whiskey and I'd walk in the house and I'd put it down on the counter and just the idea that it was in the house made me feel better, you know. But that wasn't enough. I have to delay, walk into the bathroom and change, I get out of my uh, my receiving dock clothes and get into my writer's costume. And I come back through and look at that bottle of whiskey, you know, not not yet. And walk over and put a record on, you know, just the right album. Come back out and walk by it again and pick it up and crack the seal on it. There's no sound so heavenly for a desperate alcoholic and the crack of a new seal on a bottle of booze. That's like the can opener when the dog's in the house, you know, I, you crack a seal and I'm there. I run in from anywhere I am, you know, and when I hear something. Uh, I'd crack that seal and I'd feel even better, but I wouldn't drink anything. And I'd go in and, and anoint myself, you know, with some exotic oils and come back out and walk by it again and get a glass because I'm not like some of you pigs and I'd get that and I take that glass and I go over and get, get some ice and throw it into the glass and set it down on the counter. And then the big moment came. And I take the top off and pour that whiskey, because I love bourbon. I pour that bourbon, you know, just, just to get a phlegm cutter going. So I pour it on that, gla- on that ice, and, and the ice would kick around and spit, you know, and jump on its own like it was as excited as I was. And, uh, and then take a big pull off that glass of whiskey. It's just a big, long pull. And set it down and wait. There. Made it. You know, just there. And just for a few moments. You know, just be there for a couple of seconds and have to get another drink and I was gone. You know, it wasn't, I couldn't stop drinking. I had no choice over the matter at that point and I could not stay at that moment where I knew things were going to be all right because it just fell apart quickly after that. And that's desperation for an alcoholic because. I could not stop drinking, and yet I knew that there was no point in even continuing because I'd already, it wasn't working. But I couldn't, that didn't stop me from drinking. And um, my sister in law, her name is Debbie, uh, was, I had helped get her placed in a detox because she was a bad drunk. Uh, I drank with her a lot of times, and she was a mess. And um, we had her taken against her will out of her house and brought to this detox. And, um, she got back at me, she got out of that detox and she 12-step me. <laughs> she was 22 days sober, and I went over to see her after she got out and I had quit drinking on the 11th of June of 1981. That's my sobriety date. Uh, I'd gone to a meditation retreat thinking maybe that would help. It was another one of those moments, you know we, we try anything at a certain point. The big book describes the ad infinitum list of things we do. and that was just one of the lists. I'll go on a meditation retreat. that'll make it better. And I went up there and I was going to commit suicide. Uh, because, well, you know, what else are you going to do on a meditation retreat? And I felt so much... And I don't mean to be flip about this, you know, because I have a tendency to be a, a sort of a smartass, but I don't mean that to sound this to sound like that because this, this turned my whole life around. This, what happened that day just reached down inside of me and ripped me apart. I don't ever want to forget it because I sat up there wanting to kill myself and wanting to die, you know, just wanting to die. Because I knew that I, I felt absolute despair, like I'd never felt it before at that meditation retreat. i had come off of a drunk from the night before. There was no booze at this retreat. And I was sitting up there coming off of that drunk. And then I was instructed by the retreat director to, after a guided meditation that morning in which I saw myself hanging from the bathroom door of my house, which I don't suppose is the uh, desired outcome of any kind of a guided meditation, but I, I saw myself hanging by my bathrobe cord from the um, from the uh, Back of the door of the bathroom in my house, and she said, "I want you to go out and think about your life." Oh, <laughs> thanks a lot. Huh? Tell you what, let's 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 uh, split the difference here. I'll go put my face right up against the grill of your car, and you floor it. All right? Um, and think about where your life has been and where it's going. Well, good idea. I should have had her arrested you know, for malpractice, but I, I went out there and I thought about that, and I thought that if I did not die that day, that I would continue to feel the way I felt for the next 50 years, because I'm not the kind of drunk who goes out and drinks and dies. That's easy. I'm the kind of drunk who goes out and drinks and lives and drinks and lives and survives and pulls back enough to pull it together to drink again to pull it together, to drink again, and live that life of that that constant, constant, low-level misery of knowing that nothing is ever going to get any better. And this is where I'm stuck. And uh, I sat out there that day and thought, this is how I'm going to live for the next 50 years of my life. And I felt so hopeless and despairing. And at that exact moment that I felt so hopeless, I got a feeling deep, deep inside of me, and it sounds hokey sometimes, I guess, to people who are new, but those of you who have had the experience or some variation on it, as we all have, uh, I felt utterly loved at that moment. I felt, finally, the peace that fit that longing, that hunger that I was talking about, and it came out of nowhere, and I felt completely loved, and I came unglued. I thought I was going to explode. I sat there and cried. For about four hours just sat and sobbed because i did not know what was happening to me i didn't know that what i believe today that that was an intervention from god i don't think god ignores the desperation of his children in anything i also don't believe alcoholics are the chosen people either i hear that a lot i hear out people saying that alcoholics were the chosen people i don't believe that i believe we're the lucky people you know because i don't think god i think god probably makes himself a present in every single one of our lives at that moment where we feel such despair. And all he did, I believe, and this is just my, my opinion, is that what I got that day was a sense of, look what I have for you, and it was pulled away immediately just to show that he was there. And it was, I don't know that I could have stood to look at it, you know, for any more than I saw it because it tore me up whatever it was that was there and i sat i sat there not knowing what to do at that point because i didn't know i didn't know what i know now in aa i didn't know where to go i'd never really heard of alcoholics anonymous except in some johnny carson monologue jokes but i'd never heard of aa really and i was completely then i was completely confused as well as despairing but there was something in there that i did, i didn't drink that night i went home and i bought popsicles And I sat on my front porch and ate popsicles until I would I had to go up and vomit this this melted rainbow and then uh, (laughs) come back out on the porch and eat more popsicles and sat there and shook it out. You know I shook out that drunk for about four or five days. And I went to work and I pretended everything was all right, but it's very hard to pretend everything's all right. You know you're not smiling at that point. You're just showing teeth. You know and. um, I would drive to work and I'd be driving down by the ocean because that was my route to work and I would come down Vista Del Mar by the LA airport and the ocean's on one side and a seagull would fly by the car and I'd have to pull the car over and cry. I didn't know what the hell was happening to me. I thought I was going really insane and I hadn't had a drink in two days and I couldn't sleep and I couldn't, and I, well I couldn't sleep at night. I found an uncanny knack for being able to sleep when my boss was sitting right across the table from me saying, we need to talk about what's going on here in this back room, and I'd say, okay, and i put my head down on the desk and go, sound asleep, in front of her, that doesn't go, I would forget how to walk, uh, particularly if there were attractive women behind me, my legs would start, (laughs) I'm I'm working on this college campus, walking across the campus going, oh, god damn it, I can't even walk, and I'd have to sit down on on a planter and sit there and wait, you know? So I could get the courage to stand up again and literally say, "Okay, now left foot, right foot." And I thought I am losing my mind. And the fourth day, I went to um, I went over to see Debbie because she'd gotten out of this program, and she she twelfthed at me with 22 days sober. And I, I urge you that if you are less than 30 days sober and you think that you don't have something to share with someone. That the person standing here tonight had his life saved by somebody with 22 days sober. She gave me this program. She gave it to me. And uh, she brought me to my first AA meeting. And I didn't want to be there because I didn't think, you know, I was talking to Greg about this, you know. We have no self-worth at all. But we're arrogant enough to believe that we'll take care of it when we're damn good and ready. You know, just, I don't know where that comes from. I walked in there, and I looked around at AA, and I... I looked around the room and thought, "This is the biggest loserama I have ever seen in my life." Man, oh man, look at these! I mean, look at us! Look around! I mean, look at you! We're all different. We don't. There's no theme in here, you know. I mean, you look around. This is just, just this complete smorgasbord of humans. Hey. hey. I couldn't I couldn't figure out the pattern you know what is what is this all about what is happening here and I didn't like it because I didn't fit I thought I was different I thought I heard people from the podium and I knew I was different I heard people getting up here saying when I walked into my first AA meeting because they all talk like that in California "Um, I walked into my first AA meeting and everybody got out of the way because they were scared of me I thought God lucky you Uh, people (laughs) forgot me while they were shaking my hand and um, I, uh, I heard women at the podium say, I, I heard this my first meeting. Since I've been sober, I, I haven't had to wake up with a stranger. Yeah, I used to lay awake at night dreaming of waking up next to a stranger.
1: <laughs>
0: the best I ever got was a new set of magazines, which I'd stolen. Um, It's, uh, it's pretty pretty tawdry, but um, I sat at that meeting, and people were nice to me, and they didn't even know me, and they came out of the woodwork, and I found out, you know, when I came in here tonight with uh, Greg right after we'd had dinner, we walked to the front door, and there were several people standing out there greeting people, walking in the doors, and I'll tell you something, that there is, for someone who was as sick as I felt and as fearful as I was, uh, Just the idea that there was someone there to say, you're welcome here, was a great relief, and I didn't even know it. The simplest act of kindness is what was an attraction to me, even though I wasn't able to recognize it as such at the time. Things were happening to me that I didn't recognize for years. The primary thing that happened to me at that meeting was that I believed that I identified with something that was going on in there. I don't know what exactly, but something that was going on in there I clicked into and I didn't want to because I had all of my guard up as we do because I'm not about to get well because I'm not really sick I just have and I've got a, a therapist prescription form that says it I'm not an alcoholic I have situational problems you know situational problems if the situations would get better I wouldn't have these problems But we live in a cesspool of a world. We live in a place that you cannot, that's completely out of control. People don't care about each other. They're hateful. And, and you know, I've I've talked to thousands of alcoholics since I've been sober, and we all seem to be the kind of people who really hurt over what's going on in the world, but we're too proud to let anybody know it. So we mask it off, you know. We cover it up. And we're we're just a bunch of... uh, You know, soft centered nougats, really, when it comes right down to it, trying to masquerade as this hard thing on the outside because that's the only way we know how to protect ourselves. Because if I let you know how I really feel, I won't be able to stop crying. If I let you in for even a second, I won't be able to close it back up again. I'll have to pull myself wide open, and I'm not ready to do that. I'm not willing to do that, and I don't know what's going to happen. I'd rather just keep it the way it is. Thanks. Hi. You know? I gave everybody the straight arm handshake for about eight months, you know, but I kept coming back. I came back the second week. I came back at 4.30 in the afternoon because it, it was a hot June day um, in 1981 and it was a Sunday afternoon and I went to this AA meeting at 4 o'clock because it was it was a 7.30 meeting. I wanted to get a good seat. And uh, <laughs> you know, the newcomers are the ones who get there really early so you can get in the back of the room. And uh, that's where I wanted to sit, and I got there early, and just so happened that that day, I knew the place was air-conditioned. That was my primary concern, because it was so bloody hot. And I had a, half a bottle of Jack Daniels at home, and I didn't want to drink it. And I was just sitting there, and no one had talked to me about throwing it out, because I didn't tell anybody. I wouldn't tell anybody what's going on. I'm just a visitor. I'm with Debbie. I'm not going to stay. She's the one that's sick, you know. She's been in the hospital for this thing. Not me. I'm an outpatient. You know, I just go in, they correct my blood-peeing problems, I'm fine, you know. Little little Valium and uh, sit around doing the eternal sigh forever. But uh, I I'm not I don't have the problem she does. But I came back that day because it was cool and there were two guys there uh, who were making coffee and one guy said, uh, "What what are you looking for?" And I said, "Oh, there's some people here that were here last week." And he goes, "Oh, you mean the Alcoholics Anonymous meeting?" (laughs) Guy, there's a janitor right outside the door. Show some. Discretion here. I mean, I've and uh, I said, "Yeah, that's it. That's that's what I'm looking for." In case the place is bugged, uh, and uh, he said, well, "I didn't start till seven thirty. Um, what are you doing here so early?" And I said, oh, "I got this bottle of Jack Daniels at home. I don't feel like drinking today." He said, "You an alcoholic?" I said, "No, no, no." Um, <laughs> I'm just an enthusiastic social drinker. Uh, I have flashes of brilliance followed by months of remorse. And, uh, but you wouldn't understand because you're one of those guys, you know. Uh, you don't get it. You're one of that smorgasbord. I'm different. See, I still have the ember of potential burning in me. I'm just going to come in here and fan it long enough to get the fire going and I'm out of here. I don't need this stuff. It's very nice for you, and I really believed it was. I thought it was a wonderful thing that you people were doing. But it doesn't—it wor- won't work for somebody like me because I've been raised with all the good stuff. I've not a Catholic. I've had Catholic training. I've—I've I've been, you know, the product of school and all that stuff, as I told you before. and, and my life is, you know, still screwed up. I, I'm different from you. And uh, he said, "So you don't think you're an alcoholic?" And I said, "No." And he said, "Well." Can I ask you a quick, one quick question? I said, yeah. And he said, do you think that many non-alcoholics come to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting four hours early on a nice sunny day like today because they're afraid of having a drink at home? And I said, you know, there's something about you, you silly old man, that's really starting to grind me. Why don't you mind your own damn business? Back off and go make your little pot of coffee for your little friends, and I'll just sit over here and we just won't bother each other. Capiche? I didn't say it in so many words. I said, I don't know. And uh, I waited till he turned his back, then. He did one of the kindest of things that, that I see happening over and over again. I see, it really gets me, you know, when I think about the, the little... We keep thinking that Alcoholics Anonymous is some explosion of truth and an explosion of awareness and an explosion of, of something that we all of a sudden get clutched by the lapels by God and shaken into a new way of life. It happened to me in little tiny courtesies and little tiny moments where a guy like this guy, his name was Doc, he said, well, since you're here, would you do me a favor? Would you set up the chairs? You were here last week, and you saw how the chairs were set up. Why don't you you set up the chairs for me? We're going to make some coffee in here, and then when we're done, why don't we all go out and get a cup of coffee and get a donut someplace and talk? You know? He had a live one on the line, and I wasn't going anywhere, and I didn't want to set up the chairs. I did not want to, but I found out something very valuable that night, and that is that... uh, Sincerity is no prerequisite for staying sober. You don't have to like it to do it, you just have to do it. Cuss about it all you like, that's why we have peer groups, you know? Find somebody else who's got the same amount of sobriety as you do, and they understand the victimization you're going through by having a (laughs) set-up chair. Because the old-timers are just cynical people that don't remember what it's really like. so I went over and set up the chairs for them I set up this meeting there was about 300 people there and I put the chairs up and then we went out and had coffee and a donut and we talked you know and they talked and I just listened and I didn't know what to say and they were just kind guys these two nice alcoholic guys and uh, we went back to the meeting and I found something valuable out that night I didn't realize it at the time but they were moving those chairs you know I would set those chairs up And they started moving them around i don't like it when you move the chairs around when i've set them up you know i i was here last week and i saw how they're supposed to be set up something tells me that if you were setting them up you would have been here helping me but you weren't i did it myself no problem but if i'd wanted the chair in the middle of the aisle like that i would have put it there because i set up the chair see and maybe when you start participating like this, maybe you can set up the chairs too, but for now, why don't you just get your dead ass back where it is.
1: <laughs>
0: but instead, I came back the next week to make sure those chairs really got set up right. you know? And I came back and set them up again. And what happened in that one brief action was that that meeting felt like my meeting. Because I did something. And I didn't even know it. I wasn't cognizant of it at the time. But what happened was I was falling into the principle of something that is very important in Alcoholics Anonymous and what the steps are designed to give us. And that is that there are certain principles that are immutable. They're God's principles. There's nothing new. They're not Bill Wilson's principles. They're not AA's principles. They're God's principles that alcoholics must learn to do or will certainly drink again and live like we used to live and one of the simplest ones is setting up the chairs now how does if I had come in there the way I felt that first night and said how do I get well and someone said set up the chairs I would say you're out of your mind you know my leg's broken what do I do oh Thursday you know oh, that makes not as much sense you know what are you talking about I'm hurting here I'm confused here yeah uh why don't you pick up the cigarette the you know the the ashtrays i don't smoke <laughs> no one asked if you smoke we just asked you to take up the ashtrays if you can't do it we'll get some other guy over there there's a line of them lined up to take out the ashtrays uh, it just didn't make any sense to me at all and um i'll tell you what did make sense to me and that was that at, uh that night debbie got her 30-day chip at that meeting and uh everybody was really excited uh, i could hardly contain myself um. Ooh, 30 days <laughs> wow now meanwhile I'm hanging on with 11 days like like I've got like Jimmy Stewart and Vertigo you know I'm hanging on to that thing for all it's worth and I'm looking at her with 30 days going well, I could do that you know if I had a mind to <laughs> if I could just focus my attention on it I'll do it no problem focus my willpower on it it's just a matter of willpower at 32 days sober, Debbie went out and got drunk again. And she didn't come back to Alcoholics Anonymous for years after that. And I hadn't talked to her for a long, long time. I used to call her on my birthday. I called her a couple, few times on my birthday. And I realized that it was like talking to my own, uh, like talking to the tabletop because she was not, uh, she'd forgotten everything that she handed to me. You know, even with the hospital program and all the meetings and all the stuff, she forgot. And, she, and all the best she could do for me when I called her and I said I want to thank you for bringing me to Alcoholics Anonymous because it really did help save my life I'm grateful to you for that and I, I think about you a lot and she said I think it's really good what you're doing with your life and she, does, she didn't understand you know? she'd forgotten that that's not about anything that I'm doing with my life this is not a self-help program you know? this is a surrender program this is a service program this is a fellowship it's not self-help at all it was self help, we'd all be drunk. You know? Seriously. I don't mean that to be flipped. I don't think people who focus on themselves stay sober very long. It's not an unfolding of me. It's looking at the reflection of me and you. You know, and I didn't get it. And it's not an intellectual process either. It's an experience process. And and I was the beneficiary of a, of a I was I landed in the right spot at the right time. Because what was happening at that meeting was something that I had no knowledge of at the time, and that is the principles of AA were sound and they were in place. And the very first principle that I think Johnny's talking about this later this weekend is the first tradition of our common welfare should, should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity, that the group comes before the individual, always. Because if it doesn't, there's no place for the individual to come to stay sober. And they had a meeting that night that I first came here. They had coffee, they had cookies, they had a speaker, they had a secretary who looked good at the podium. And looking good is not the name of the game, but being an example of Alcoholics Anonymous is. And I don't like wearing a coat and tie any more than anybody does. When I get up to the podium of Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't want to look like I looked when I walked in here. You know? I need to make myself look different. I need to look like somebody who's getting better. And if that means look, wearing a clean shirt and a tie out of respect for Alcoholics Anonymous, then that's what I have to do. And so I, I uh, saw that at that meeting. And I saw people taking birthday cakes. And I heard the speaker talk about recovery. And most importantly, I heard the speaker talk about alcoholism and not the plethora of problems that we deal with in some meetings. Every, every day we hear tons of stuff that have nothing to do with Alcoholics Anonymous. But I heard about alcoholism there, and they stuck to the tradition And what happened was it made Alcoholics Anonymous a safe place for a guy like me to walk into. And I felt safe there. And it was all in place when I walked in the door. And it's my responsibility now, 13 years later, to act as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, to keep Alcoholics Anonymous a safe place for a newcomer like me to stumble through the door, whether it's a man or a woman or an old person or a young person or a black person or a brown person or whoever it is, an alcoholic like me. To walk through the door and feel like he can be safe here. To feel like maybe she has some hope here for her and her kids. We see some ruined people walk into Alcoholics Anonymous. And if it's not safe for them, and if they don't hear the message that we're alcoholics and we are recovering from a seemingly hopeless disease, a state of mind and body and spirit. That if they don't hear that there's that hope here of recovering from alcoholism, if all they hear is some blanded out version of Alcoholics Anonymous, most people aren't going to stay interested enough to stay. But I heard people who told me exactly what I was without pointing it at me. You know, I got to feel that. I got to identify with them. And uh, not everybody, but bits and pieces of everybody. And uh, I got a sponsor. I wound up going to... uh, I was sent to the Pacific group because they said that... The guy who sent me there said that they can deal with people who don't want to take action. Because at that point, I just didn't want to really do much. I didn't want to go to more than one meeting a week. Uh, The steps, I thought, were a nice concept. Uh, But I've read all this stuff, you know. I've I've graduated from college. I've got a degree in English literature. I certainly don't need to look at this uh, book that you've got that has the jaywalker metaphor in it. (laughs) I mean, I've... uh, I've explicated poetry by John Donne. Why would I be interested in G-Mine at Grand The Wind Stopped Blowing, or whatever that line is in there. So this is really, it's very cute, but it reads like Boy's Life, 1938. Um, it's very quaint. And I wasn't about to do it, you know. I had that arrogance again that protects me. And you know what? I came in here, attitude, I came in here with such an attitude, and I was new. And attitude, for me, was a mask for fear. Because I haven't got anything else. All I got is an attitude to throw up there. It's my mask. You know, it's the only thing that will protect me from you. And I see badasses come into AA, tough guys. And I see these old timers walk up. I used to watch these little old men walk up to these guys with, you know, they've got they've got snake skin belts on, you know, and, and uh, necklaces made of their own teeth uh, around their neck. And You think I'm kidding? I sponsored a guy who had a necklace of his own teeth around. Uh, and I watch these little old guys walk up and say, so, how are you doing there? Said, get away from me, you old fart. Why don't you keep coming back? Let me get you a cup of coffee. And I'm thinking, listen, I used to drink with guys like that. Don't get too close to them. They'll hit you with that primary change and back him up. I see these little old guys that were just whole, powerless over these mean characters. What they understood was they understood that the attitude is fear. And, you know, I can deal with another man's fear. I get threatened by another man's attitude, but when I understand what the attitude comes from and that it's fear, and if you're an alcoholic and you're here, you're afraid. You know, when we're new in here, we're afraid. That's the biggest thing that that drove me. And it's the the thing that I find most common in drunks that come into AA. And uh, they they understood that. They knew that they were looking at the fear in the man and not the attitude. And they could see the alcoholic underneath that. And they'd go up there and work with these guys. You know, and it, it was just an amazing thing. And um, I wound up getting a sponsor in this group, just not not because I wanted to, there was no virtue involved, it's just that I got sick of hearing people say, you got a sponsor, (laughs) yes? That's the only reason I got a sponsor, so I could say, yes, yes, I have a sponsor, that's him, right there, the big tall guy, Bill McDonald, right there, see him? Why don't you go up and ask him, my sponsor, that's him, I got him, now shut up! And uh, Bill said, well, you know what we're going to start doing? We're going we're to take this slow. Are you willing not want to do anything to stay sober. I just want to find that out first. And I said, yeah. And he said, uh, you're sure? I said, yeah, I am. And he said, I can't want you to shave that mustache off, and I'll see you at the men's stag on Friday. Now, that mustache is my only link to David Niven. And, um,
1: <laughs>
0: and I was going to hang on to that for dear life. I was about thirty pounds heavier than I am now. I had shoulder-length hair, or what remains of it, and uh, that mustache and my deerstalker hat, and I was looking cool. And uh, he said that, and I said, "Why? Uh, is that in the Big Book?" Now, I I had not read the Big Book, mind you, but uh, we know how to bluff. And I I recall that there, I knew enough about the Big Book that there wasn't a chapter to the barber in there. So, I, um, <laughs> so. I said, what's it got to do with the big... And he said, nothing. And I said, well, what does it have to do with Alcoholics Anonymous? Shaving a mustache. He said, nothing. Well, then why do I have to... And he said, let me, let me explain something to you. I don't normally explain direction when I give it, but tonight I'm going to give you a freebie. Sport. You just said a few seconds ago you were willing to do anything to stay sober, right? Yeah. I just asked you to shave off your mustache. Yeah. Well, if you're willing, not willing to shave off a mustache just because I asked you to, fat chance you're going to be willing to do any of the steps when I start leading you on to doing that because they're a lot more difficult than shaving sport. So what I ask you to do now is shave your mustache off and I'll see you at the men's stag on Friday night. If you want to keep your mustache, that's great. I love you. I hope you stay sober, but I will not work with you because I'm not going to try to defend every direction I give you. I haven't got the time. You're going to have to just do it. And so I went home. That I, I went home, and I was furious. You know, I was walking out of there doing all of these, and um, <laughs> I didn't know what to do. And I got home that night, and here I was, about 40 days sober. And I'm looking at myself in the mirror, and I wasn't going to shave. I didn't shave. And I went to bed that night. And the next morning, I got up, and I sweated him a day. I let him worry. You know, I didn't shave that day either and then the next morning I got up and I had to go to work and I knew I had to go to the men's stag that night and I looked at myself in the mirror and I thought and it occurred to me and I don't know if it was my own thought or what thought it was but I like to believe it's again one of those intercessions of God when you're open to it the most and I thought if I fight this thing one more time if I fight anything in here I'm not going to make it and I just took the pair of scissors that I had on the counter and I snipped off one half of the mustache and I thought I've got to shave it now and I shaved it and I went to the men's stag that night, and Bill came up and stuck his arm around me, and he said, uh, here we go. He's been my sponsor ever since. That man has led me. That guy. And it wasn't because I wanted to do it, you know, but it was because I had to do it. And that's that's what I found out is surrender. And um, Bill has taken me through the steps more by his by his example than by his direction. You know, I've done all the steps. I've done them as the big book talks about them. But I did the first three steps in action. You know, we have, a, uh, we have a lot of things that we can do in Alcoholics Anonymous that allow us... See, I can't just surrender in some abstract vacuum. I can't just sit down and go, Oh, God, I surrender, and then try to sustain that feeling of surrender. I have to do something. And what that means is I have to do something I don't want to do. Go stack the chairs. I sure don't want to do that. But I'll do it, you know. Look, I'm stacking them. It's not gonna work. Mop the floor, I got a mopping commitment. Get commitment. Get to the meetings an hour early. These are all the things that he was telling me to do. Be at the meetings an hour early. Shake everybody's hand that you see. Look in them in the eye and ask them their name if you don't know it. If you know their name, say hello and say their name because people like to hear their name. It makes them feel like you're paying attention to them. And pretty soon they'll, they'll get to know your name stay after the meeting and talk to people. Go to coffee. Get in on the fellowship. Don't run out of here when the meeting's over. You know, that's not what AA is all about. It's not a, It's not like a correspondence course. You know, just get in here and become part of it. And I didn't want to do it. Nobody wants to do it. I, let me see a show of hands. How many of you came in here wanting to be a part of all this? I don't know that anybody would raise their hand because none of us really want to do it. But we do it because we have to do it. And then as the old annoying old-timer saying is, once you do it and you don't want to do it anymore, then you don't have to do it anymore. And that's true. Because I remember mopping the floor at Ohio Street when I was eight months sober at, our, at this clubhouse where we have some meetings in our group, and I am mopping the floor in there, and I'm looking around, and I realized, I, it just occurred to me, I knew everybody in that room by name. I knew them, and the, the most important thing was that while I stood there with that mop, I felt absolutely equal to them. I felt like I was in the middle of people I'd known for years, and I felt that there was only goodness meant for me in there. And that didn't come as a thought to me. That was a moment of knowledge that if you continue to take the actions, even though you don't believe in them, that eventually you understand the principle of things. There's an old guy in my neighborhood when I was a kid named Irv Goldstone. And Irv lived two doors down, and he taught me how to ride a bicycle because my father had neither the inclination nor the patience to teach me how to ride a bike. So Irv took me out on a bike because I was about ten years old and I didn't know how to ride a bike yet. And um I wasn't gonna ask, you know, if I can't ride the bike, screw the bike. You know, if I can't figure it out myself, screw you. Um and uh, he got me on the bike and he said, I'll hang on to the back basket part while you pedal, and then you won't fall over. And he did it. For days we'd go out on the side, I get out, I'd get home from school and Irv would Irv repaired bicycles and he had his own son and his own son knew how to ride a bike. And get, I'd get on the bike, and Irv would get behind her, and he'd walk along with was behind me, and I'd pedal. Sometimes I'd pedal faster just to see what old Irv was made of. But uh, <laughs> I'm deeply, you know, it, it never occurred to me until just a few, like a month ago, how much I owe to this man for the lesson I learned in that, and all he thought he was doing was teaching me how to ride a bicycle. But one day, I was riding that bicycle, and I was moving. And I thought, man, damn, Irv's got some steam going here. And I turned around, and Herb was gone. Herb <laughs> was standing about three blocks back, waving, you know. He hadn't taught me how to turn around either, and I uh, <laughs> I had to go about four blocks out of my way just to get around and cycle back, and I and I, made, I rode all the way back, and I said, I rode the bike, you know? Now, I rode that bike, and I maintained my balance, and I knew nothing about the principle of balance. I knew nothing about the principle of gravity. I knew nothing about physics. I knew nothing about speed and air speed and wind flow and all that stuff. I knew nothing about anything. All I knew was that if I kept pedaling, Irv would hold the back of the basket and I wouldn't fall over. And then one day he let go of it and I seemingly understood the whole principle of what I was doing because the principle took over. My knowledge had nothing to do with it. It was the principle that took over. And the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous are the same way. If I continue to do them over and over again, even in a faulty way, even in a piss-poor way, even in a ridiculously awkward, gawky, stupid-looking way, even in a pathetic, dribbling, mewling way, that eventually the principle is going to override my inadequacies and I will become a product of the principle at that point. But it doesn't work unless I do it. And I, I say this I mean this with absolute respect for step studies and for the steps, but the steps are not meant to be studied. They're meant to be taken. And if you take them, you're going to fail at them. But just because you fail at them once doesn't, you know, you have to take them once. It's not a final exam. You know, I made a gawky amends, and stupid amends. And my ex-wife sat across the table from me and argued with me about my amends that I was trying to make to her. She called me up last week and she said, I have to say something to you. This may make you uncomfortable, but I just have to tell you something. We've been divorced for 13 years now. Since I made amends to her, I've tried, you know, we've been friends. And that says a lot because this woman, I I hurt her, you know. I hurt her a lot in this relationship and drove her to do certain things that that she would not have done had she not been involved with someone like me. And uh, I made my amends to her the best way I knew how, and we became friends, and she still continued to sit there and say, do you really think that you need to be in AA all this time? I mean, why do you have to do this? It wasn't really that bad, was it? And I'd say, well, do you remember this? Yeah. No, how about this? How about falling backwards against the windowsill and breaking the window at the front of these people's house or breaking the windowsill there? Does that sound like a normal drinker? No. What about this? What about this? I'd go along the list, this checklist. She'd go, yeah, yeah. But still, I don't see how she would just complete <laughs> right over the top and uh, I kept looking up to see if there were al circling in the air around her while she's saying this, you know. But she called me and she said, this may sound really strange coming from me, but I was packing some things to move this week, and I found our wedding registry where, where you put down all the gifts that people gave you and you write down who's going to write the thank you card to the person and what they gave you and all that stuff. And she said, we received about 200 gifts at our wedding. Do you know which one you wrote the thank-you card for, the only one? I was looking at it today. Your best friend gave us, for our wedding, a quart of Jose Cuervo and a quart of Jack Daniels. You put a star next to their name and wrote, God bless them. She said, I don't know what it is, but I think I'm starting to get a picture here. And I said, why don't you put away that crap and start living in the present? I didn't say that, but um, I talked to Debbie, the woman who brought me to this program and she's sober four and a half years now. And, uh, and uh, I, I'm, she's not going to many meetings and, I, and she was embarrassed to talk about it. And I said, well, you know, maybe we can go to a meeting sometime. My sponsor suggested that I just call her up and take her to a meeting someday just to get her back into it, you know, just to return the favor, or at least try to return the favor. And my life has been you know i got off that receiving dock after i was there for 13 years or 12 years and i uh, got a job teaching at the college where i was taking books off trucks and i was teaching english there and i went back to grad school and i didn't finish grad school because of a series of events that happened that that, that were beyond my power again but things just kept happening the more i would take the action that people recommended to me and the more i would surrender i didn't want to be a teacher believe me I, and i certainly didn't want to teach high school and I did that for six years. And that is really the, the flume ride into the toilet sometimes. Uh, but I'll tell you something, at the end of six years, I learned more about this program than I've ever experienced anywhere else. I mean, I experienced it firsthand right there and learned how if I want people to change, I have to change first. The most spiritual thing I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous is that if I want, it's, it's infinitely more spiritual for me to flip my blinker on when I'm making a lane change in traffic even though it's inconvenient. It's more spiritual for me to flip my blinker on and let the person in the next lane know that I'm coming over than it is for me to get up here and talk about God for ten minutes. You know, It's more spiritual for me to hold the door open for someone even though I'm in a hurry and they're not walking fast enough. <laughs> and it's infinitely more spiritual for me to listen to somebody rather than try to tell them what I know. And just listen. I learned that from high school kids. I learned that from 16-year-old kids who were just as rambunctious as hell, but who, because of the principles of the program, I was able to provide something. I don't know how well, but I'll tell you something. When I finished that teaching job, I went around that room. I got a, I got a job as a writer. Ironically enough, uh, about three years ago, I just celebrated three years doing that. And that's now. Wait a minute. That has that's. I, I don't like the confuse things or sound like uh, like if you stick around long enough you're going to make a big giant success of yourself in some showbiz job okay it has nothing to do with that if you are a good mechanic you will fulfill exactly what god has for you to do and you will understand it what that fulfillment means if you stay in this program and do the steps and follow the principles if you are a, a landscaper or a hairdresser, or a waiter, whatever you are, you have something that God has put into you to deal with, something unique that you do better than anybody else does. You know? I happen to have found my niche for today. It could all go up in smoke tomorrow. It doesn't matter. I've found out that it doesn't matter what the surface looks like because things are in a state of dynamic change all the time. And if I stay sober and keep walking, I'm going to walk into the things that I'm supposed to be into anyway. And I got this job writing, and I... Um, and I had to take this job because my sponsor told me to take it because I'd, I'd enjoyed teaching for so long and I didn't want to leave. And I was a lot of fear, too. And I went back to that room and I packed up all my stuff, and I packed up all my books and things after six years there. And I was taking them down to my car and I stood in there and I, I, I just felt close to those kids. And I felt like the last the previous six years had been a really important part of my life. And it's what people here had taught me how to do. It's taught me how to treat people with respect simplest little courtesies are what make the principles work not the big grand gesture I don't have to leap in front of a bullet to save somebody's life to prove that I'm a man I don't have to have uh, Juliet on the balcony you know to prove that I'm I'm a man I have a relationship today with a woman and I've had several relationships of beautiful wonderful women strong loving kind women many of them in Al-Anon and uh, the woman I'm going with now is an Al-Anon. And my relationship with her has been more successful than I've had with any other person, because I, I'm learning, and so is she. And we're all in this process of learning. Let me just close with this. I, went, I learned how to ski a couple of years ago. And I didn't really learn. I took lessons to ski. And um, I, went, I went, was with the, with the, my previous girlfriend. Her name is Maria, and she's a longtime member of Al-Anon. And she's, a, she's a terrific woman. And she taught me so much in the time. We were together for about three and a half years. And she took me skiing with her and her family to Vail, Colorado. Now, Vail, Colorado has some big hills. Of course, I was not to ski on them. I got to go on the bunny hill. Now, I don't know about you, but I got a lot of pride wrapped up in going down the bunny hill. Um, And I had to take lessons. And I don't like to take lessons. My feeling is if I can't do it first time, why bother? Uh, Well, I don't want to learn how to ski. I just want to ski. So i got on the bunny hill and had to lay down on the ground and get up you know that's a big exercise okay now stand up oh i have to skis on i can do that and i couldn't and um i kept falling down And the problem i had was i kept falling down while i was trying to ski and that day i knew she was out she's one of these triple black diamonds you know screaming down the face of a building uh Skiers, and she's out there with her private instructor, you know, some Bavarian a guy named Otto or something. I don't know. There's a, she's out on the slope laughing and skiing with him, and I'm I'm on the bunny hill, you know. And uh, so that day at lunch, I was sitting up there frustrated as hell because I could not stay on my feet. They took us out on this other hill, and I kept falling down, falling down, falling down. And she comes up, how's it going? You know, once well, she's got you know Otto with her, and I I thought I was just going okay. Well, what's the problem? I keep falling down you what I keep falling I keep falling down <laughs> well I'll tell you what why don't I take you out on a private lesson this afternoon and I'll watch you and we'll see what you're doing what's going on I said oh, okay so we go out to this hill and she says okay I'm going to go down to the bottom of the hill and you go up there and you ski down and I'll watch you and I'll figure out what's going on so I start skiing I get going you know and I'm on my feet I make my first turn whew, I got it made the turn I'm going I'm going I'm getting faster whoop, fall down get up stand up See? She goes, yeah, okay, come on, come on, come on. Start skiing again. I'm moving. I'm going faster. I make the turn. I'm going faster. I make the turn. Whoop! fall down again. She says, keep coming down. Well, after like 42 falls going down the hill, I get to the bottom of the hill and she says, you know what's happening? You're sitting down. I said, no, I'm falling down. She said, no, you're sitting down. You start going a little fast and you get scared and you lock your knees. You face the opposite direction. You face... The opposite direction you're supposed to, and you lean back toward the hill, which is a natural reaction because that's where you think your balance is going to come from. But then you you sit down because it's safer to sit back than it is to fall forward. I said, "Well, what do you suggest (laughs) when I'm when I'm screaming down the hill like that, and I start to feel like I get scared and I'm going to fall?" What should I do besides lean back? I mean, it's a natural reaction. When you're going to hit something, you lean back. She said, I want you to lean forward. Bend your knees and lean forward. And I said, you've got to be out of your ever-loving mind. That's like skidding in a car toward a cliff and saying, what do I do? Floor it. I think not. And she said, well, if you're not going to, there's no sense in me wasting my time with you. Come on, Otto. And off they went. And uh, I went the next day. I kept falling down again. I knew I was falling down. I mean, she, she had a perceptual problem. And um, the next afternoon, she said, why don't you come skiing with my family? So they took us up to where, you know, there's no timber growing up at this point. They found fossils up there of animals that couldn't sustain life at that level. I, I'd never been on a lift so long. It was like a 12-hour ride at the top of this hill. And we get out, and she goes, okay, we're going down the mountain now. And I thought, wait, well, wait, 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 wait. How are we going down the mountain? I can't get down the bunny hill. And you guys, you guys are all skiers. And she said, well, you, you, well, we'll go slow, and you can follow us. I thought, oh, I can't do this. So they, they're standing there, and the snow plows are coming over the hill. And she said, we got to get out of here before these snow plows get it. We're going to get behind them, and we'll never get to the bottom. So they took off. I'm standing there thinking... I don't know my way down. I don't know how to get to the bottom of the hill unless I follow them. So I jumped off too. I started going. I'm thinking, oh shit. (laughs) Because I'm going fast. I make the first turn and I came around and I'm getting faster. I'm turning and I'm starting to get scared because I'm out of control now. And you know what I did? I bent my knees and I leaned forward and I stayed on my feet and I made the next turn. And I face downhill, like she said. Just keep your body facing downhill and turn your knees and lean forward and bend down and bend your knees and lean forward and keep turning. And I'm turning. And I'm hauling down this hill, leaning forward, turning, turning. And then I ate it big time.
1: <laughs>
0: I mean, I mean pinwheel looking. There is snow and skis and my my glasses came off my hat and I'm laying in my underwear just about and, you know and uh, some some Bavarian skied by and went yard sale as he went by and I'm laying there and I hurt too I'll tell you I hurt bad and. I had snow in my eyes, and I'm I'm laying there thinking, oh, dear, what happened to me? What, where am I, Mom? And uh, Maria Maria stripped her skis off, and she went running up the side of that hill, and she ran about a hundred yards up that hill, and she got up there, and she said, she almost had tears in her eyes. She said, "You fell, you fell, you didn't sit down, you fell. It was beautiful." We were all standing at the bottom of the hill, going, "Jesus, he fell!" <laughs> you were leaning forward, weren't you? Now, let this not make any sense to, uh, to you, which it may not. But um, I got to tell you, if you're new or you're on some shaky ground tonight, that instead of dropping back, trust the principle because the principle works here. There's 12 steps that guide us to the principles of this life. And when you feel like you're going to fall and you, everything inside of you tells you to sit down, lean forward. Just lean into it. Because we're all waiting for you. We're all waiting. We're not going to let you get lost. And if you fall, which you will, and everything fall, seems to fall apart, we're going to take our skis off. We're going to come back up that hill and we're going to pick you up And we're going to move you along. And you don't ever have to be afraid again. You don't ever have to be alone again. You don't ever have to be lost again. Stay with us. And thank you again for having me as a guest.